Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This podcast has some of our favorite interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor along with Romaine Bostic and Caroline Hyde. What'd you miss? It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we took a look at a very alternative asset, trading cards. It was a huge trend back in the 90s, but it faded out over time as the markets got oversaturated. Now there is a renewed interest in sports trading cards. Prices are soaring and we've seen some major sales. A Kobe Bryant rookie card just sold recently for $1.75 million. So we spoke about it with Gary Vaynerchuk. I associate Gary with all kinds of things, collectibles, and he totally called this a wave. He's a board member of the sports memorabilia company Candy, the CEO of VaynerMedia, and he has a new NFT project called VFriends. And I started by asking Gary what it is about this moment that people want tangible, physical things that they can hold. You know, it's, it's very interesting. The, the sports card thing was actually happening pre-COVID, pre kind of the Reddit, you know, Wall Street thing. Though, you know, we were talking about this three and a half years ago. That was just happening because I think the sneaker flipping game was changing where a yeah. lot of entrepreneurs, and I think a lot of, you know, 86 to 91 was the big, big, big era of sports cards in American history. And a lot of those 15, 16 year olds started having seven, eight, nine year olds. So you had a kind of like that classic turn that you see in the toy industry. You know, in general, the more broader question you're asking, I think, and, and you cover this a lot on, the, on this great program, investing has become a cultural pop culture phenomenon. If you go to TikTok right now and look at 15, 16, 17 year olds, mm. they think of themselves as investors. And whether that's the Robin Hood mentality, whether that's sports cards, whether that's NFTs, whether that's cryptocurrency, or whether it's just public stocks, you have an entire generation of 15 to 25 year olds that think of themselves as entrepreneurs and investors or influencers who are gonna make money doing marketing. That's a very different breed right. than what you and I grew up with. And it's been allowed because, well, the cost of getting into the market has been lowered through innovation like the likes of Robin Hood or whether we can get into crypto without having to be someone who earns a certain amount of money or to have a million to your name. But I'm interested, Gary, like, how much do the community you speak to, this TikTok community in particular, get frustrated by the patronization coming from a lot of the people that basically we talk to here on Bloomberg TV. There's an awful lot of older style investors who are like, oh, pfft, cryptocurrencies, are they mad? You know, I think you've asked the exact right question. We all know this. This is how society works. It used to be with like bands and clubs and restaurants and dress culture. There has never been a time that 15 to 25 year olds are interested in supporting what their parents are. And to your point, you know, when, when individuals come on this show and talk down and dismiss something that is an incredible reality to many of those people, it only fuels the fire. And the reality is, and we've seen this with some of the you know, stock prices of things that, as you know, everybody said months ago would be a one week, two day, four day phenomenon. Right. The, re the reality is, is that a lot, you know, and I 
to a lot of my 40, 50, 60, 70 year old business friends, which I have a ton of, probably more than my 15 to 25 year old friends. And I remind them, the market is the market is the market. And the market's evolving, things are changing. And you know, fundamentals still matter. There's plenty of things that matter, but what I will definitely say is alternative investing. It is more interesting for a lot of people to hold a Michael Jordan rookie card as an investment than let's say 12,000 shares of a very solid company. Mm -hmm. Culturally, visually, and the way that people story tell on social media, there, you get double value. You not only get the intrinsic value and be able to trade it, but you get the social currency mm. that comes along with like owning a Rolex or a Mercedes, which in my opinion actually speaks to incredibly bullish opportunities for the right NFT projects long term. You know, you mentioned something about sneakers, which I think is interesting. You know, people have like been into sneakers, obviously, for a while. But now we have like these sneaker marketplaces where one can track the price of a given Jordan as if you're tracking a stock. You can go to StockX and look at it go up and down. How much does that make collecting things more fun? The idea that not just you have a thing, but like it's fun to watch the line go up or down and it's fun to see if you have one of the ones that's uh, going up in price. And how much does that sort of change the, the collecting game to be able to see these live markets in action? Well, it changed everything. This used to be stuff, as you know, that would be in malls, convention centers, you know, a, a sneaker or a sports card or a comic book show would be in a firehouse in a suburb. Now it's at scale. It's mm. everywhere. It's legitimized. To your point, StockX looks like I'm looking at Bloomberg. Yeah. And, and again, I'm trying to remind people, holding real estate for a passive income, holding a stock, those are great business decisions. Those are our grandparents and even our contemporaries' business decisions for alternatively sitting on cash. The fact that you now can do that with sneakers, sports cards, NFTs, and many other things, and you get the cultural value of being able to flex that on your social media. I think humans, I think the industry of finance, the Wall Street crowd, the Madison Avenue crowd is underestimating the thirst that humans have always had yeah. for, for communicating through what they hold. When you buy a brand new Mercedes, that depreciates in value as soon as it leaves the lot, mm -hmm. but you bought it many times for social signaling. The fact that we can now invest in these assets right. and make money, but also social signal while we hold them up in our public crypto wallets or in our Instagram photos is a human psychology that is grossly being misunderstood yeah. by the black and white decision makers that watch this show. Gary, I'm interested in though that Quite often in the past, we've we've held up like my generation, like or just about call myself millennial, the Gen Z. Oh, they'll never buy houses. They don't want to own things. They're not into like uh, actually purchasing stuff. They're going to rent it all. And then, funnily enough, you hit a certain age, you have a you pro procreate, you have a kid and suddenly you do want to buy a house or you at least want to try. You do want to go on holidays in the way that you always used to. You don't want to just rent things. Is there an element that this will be a, a fad and we'll find all these, the, the TikTok generation buying ETFs in the future? Or is it that this will really change the way in which investment happens? I, I think your storytelling upfront is exactly right. I think that happens all the time. However, I want to remind both of you and everybody watching that there has always been an alternative class it's called art. It's called antiques. If you go look back at the data, the amount of money spent on these things are quite real and meaningful. The difference is 
There's no 26 year old on earth that wants to go to a Sotheby's auction house and buy a piece of China from <laughs> Europe in the 1800s. They wanna buy a Bill Russell rookie card. They wanna buy a Pikachu. They wanna buy a rare pair of Jordans. This is just the contemporization of human behavior, that's all. Now this week, we had what some Fed watchers were calling the most important FOMC meeting of Chairman Powell's career. The central bank may have held rates at zero, but they're even looking for more change within non-white communities, with Chair Powell admitting that the playing field may not be even. So we got some reaction from Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox and senior advisor to Tineo, and the author of a new memoir called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. And we started by asking how much she thinks policymakers are taking the goal of narrowing the racial employment and wealth gap seriously and how they can do better than policymakers during past expansions. I think that we are at a point in, in America's progress and the world's progress where uh, this is front and center for, for political leaders. I'm not sure how effective um, all of the attempts and policies will be, but I do know, I do feel that uh, there, is, there is clarity about the fact that without some real attempts uh, to, to actually close this gap, this diversity, uh, this diversity of earnings, right? And unfortunately, we have mm. two camps, a lot and very little. And we have a lot of people who earn very little and a whole, a very small number of people who earn a lot. That is not sustainable. The good news is that the government in this country, and I believe the governments around the world uh, in, mo in highly affected countries also are believing that. So I'm hoping like heck, knocking on wood, that um, not only do they see it, but they also have some policies in place that will help to close the gap. Ursula, what's so amazing about your experience is you've earned a lot and you've also known what life is like to earn very little. Through your memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are, the writing in it is so, it stirs so many emotions. You talk about a tenement apartment that you grew up in New York, what poverty looks like, what it smells like, what it feels like. You talk about your mother really making you study hard, get in, get, don't get up in, caught up in your neighborhood, you write, move on in life to a better place. You said she was fierce about it, but also you saw certain impediments when you wanted to go to university, for example, and the fact that, I mean, this is so amazing to me, and, and it's because I'm fortunate, but the fact that they made, one of the universities you wanted to go to wanted you to swim a lap, and how much that discourages inner city kids. Are you, yeah, this, what sort of impediments are you seeing now, as you now have the luxury of having earned a lot, and seeing how people like you now can get out of that? I mean, and part, you know, the example of swimming a lap is, sounds ridiculous, right? It's like, of course you can swim a lap. Just learn to swim a lap. You know, why would that be an impediment? Isn't it better for your health? Isn't it safety? Isn't it safer? The, the fact of the matter is we have no place to learn how to swim a lap, goddammit. So we can't learn to swim a lap. It shouldn't even be in the criteria. And it's not, I don't know if it's purposeful. I say in the book that I think it's purposeful. I think it's either purposeful or, you know, worse, they have no clue where we are, what we live like, what we, where we live what opportunities we have. And it's just, it's not just me, the small number, you know, like five of us, the vast majority of the United States of America has, is struggling with some significant gap in a basic need. So I think that what happens now is that we literally have to back up a little bit. The people in power like me, like you guys, the people who are part of the at least 10% have to actually get closer to the people who are the other 90% understand how they live. This is not a desire to do poorly. This is not laziness. It's not that we're slovenly. It's none of that stuff. We literally, a lot of us, were just struck, stuck. 
We had no money. We had nobody paying attention to us. We're trying as heck, as hard as possible. My mother was maniacal. She was, my mother was literally a maniac on this thing. Any energy she had, any energy she had was put to these three kids. And I know that people can say, well, if my mom did it, everybody's mom should be able to do it. I actually think it's too much to ask. She died at 49 years old, not because she ate bad, she, uh, not because she took drugs, she didn't drink. She died out of being tired and poorly cared for. I know I'm getting, I get emotional when I talk about this. It's, we deserve better. Humans deserve better, particularly from the, the wealthiest, most privileged, most resourced nation in the world. We just need a better start. People need a better start in life. Your book, who do you see as the ideal reader? Who did you write it for? Who do you envision reading it? And who could benefit, in your view, the most from reading about your story? I wanted it to go to, to younger people more than anyone. Um, and it didn't matter what race or gender they were. I wanted people to understand that, I wanted them to get in their minds that if you have a lot, a little help to someone else can make a huge different difference. And if you don't have a lot, a little help from someone else can make a huge difference. We should be able to actually work better together as individuals, as humans, to actually make sure that we don't have what I call zip, zip, code, zip code laden um, poverty and zip code laden wealth, that we should actually kind of build bridges between um, rich and poor, between black and white. I mean, it's, a, it's the same old story. Please, young people, mm. understand that this is your world. This is you, you. I mean, we're going to leave it to you. I, I'm now on the other side of 50, well on the other side of 50. And they have the ability to look at what we have created for them, keep the things that are really good, and literally just throw away the rest of the crap and build new, new vehicles to actually have a better society as we go forward. We have one of the best in the world, but we, are, we, we know we're struggling, right? We're struggling because we don't understand each other. In some cases, we just don't like each other. In many cases, we have no care for each other. That's not sustainable. I, by the way, I'm fine. Right? We're all, I'm fine. I live in a nice apartment. I have another place. In the, I'm fine. But I know that I can't live in the world happily if everybody around me is living in a disastrous situation and I'm walking here with mink coats on. So we have to figure out a way to make it such that we can lift everybody's boat a little bit. I'm not into socialism. I want hard work. I do want a true meritocracy, but I don't yeah. want the inability to start. Let's talk about meritocracy. Let's talk a bit about affirmative action for a moment, because it was really interesting a couple of weeks ago, and it was Joe pointed it out earlier on our editorial call. There was a CEO, Frank Slootman, over at Snowflake, a tech company, world you know well, came on Bloomberg and sort of laid bare his thoughts. He said, we're actually highly sympathetic to diversity. Well, we just don't want it to override merit. Because they start doing that, I start compromising the company's mission, literally, dot, dot, dot. He then says, he goes on to say that many CEOs, all the names that you know privately, they are there. We are all in the same mind. It's just publicly, it's difficult to be that way. 
Now, Ursula, before we rant on him too much, Frank Slootman did go on to apologise. He walked back those remarks and he said, look, I do not believe that diversity and merit are in any way mutually exclusive. But you are a woman who's working hard to make boards, executive committees, more diverse. How hard is it to keep on talking about meritocracy when behind the scenes people are apparently thinking like this? I, I don't know um, the CEO of Snowflake. Um, based on this short um, interaction that I've had over the last couple of weeks with some of his thoughts, I think it's probably a good idea that I don't know him. He's wrong. He's wrong. And, you know, the problem is, this is pre-apology. The problem is that he probably is right that there are a lot of people who actually believe what he said. His apology, the, the comments before his apology is what he feels, is what he thinks. And I think it's how he governs and interacts with quote unquote, this other group of people, those women, those black people who depend on affirmative act. I, I, I am saddened by the comments, but I tell you what, one of the ways that we have this comment come true, one of the ways that quote unquote, they win is if we shut up and stop pushing. If we allow, we, me, people who look like me, people who look like you, who believe like me, that everyone deserves a chance and we have a system and a structure that does not allow or afford everybody that chance. We don't, the reason why a meritocracy in society is so difficult to actually get into reality is because we start so unequally. We are judged so unfairly. And I don't mean we, me, we groups of people, bias, um, structural racism, structural um, inequality is there. If the CEO doesn't see it, by the way, God bless him. I'm happy he's lived a life where he's never run into a literally someone who thinks about who you are and judges who you are without knowing who you are. I'm happy that he's never run into it. Trust me, Mr. CEO of Snowflake, that's not the way it is in life. Women are still expected. We see this in COVID more than expected, they are left with the burden of taking care of the full burden of trying to get a make a living in this very tough economy and taking care of the children who are now stuck at home. That burden didn't fall evenly to men and women. Guess who got it? Women, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's affirmative action is not there because we just like people. Affirmative action is there because we have uneven distribution of opportunity, structurally uneven. We have uneven distribution of wealth. It's there to try to balance the scales, not to you know jump in front of anyone. We just wanna get in the same line as people. And I, I think it's really narrow to believe that, that we're, we're past that. We're past that, it's all done, you know, we're, we're okay. I think that you know, it's unfortunate. So as you mentioned, um, you know, it's certainly plausible that there are other CEOs who think like him and or his original comments uh, reflected that. Are there, um, how do you tell the difference? I mean, because as he was saying, oh, we say this in public and then in private we feel it differently. How do you tell the difference between someone who's talking about these issues in good faith? And is it just a matter of looking at hard numbers? Is it just a matter of like, you know, it's great, rhetoric is fine, but in the end, uh, look at, it's about uh, measuring the data. Yeah, this is how I think about it. Somebody else said this, some great white business leader or government leader said, trust, but verify. I, the way that you get, by the way, I want to hear the rhetoric change. It has to, 
is discouraging if you are a young female employee to hear the comments that some believe, actually really do believe in business. So I, the rhetoric has to change. But I think that the rhetoric changing is step number half. It's not even step one, it's step number half. The rest of the steps are set goals. Step number, and that step, that, that gets me to step two. Set the goals, track progress, adjust your approach, check the numbers, adjust your approach, check the numbers. It is going to take a, a while to get here. This is, we didn't get here overnight. And so I know it's going to take a while to, to fix. And if we see progress, that's good progress, you will see patience. And I don't mean patience sitting back. I mean, mm. patience that helping to engage, to move it along. We know that there are things that we have to do if we're women or people of color or Latinx or whatever it is to actually maybe adjust some of our approaches and our thinking. Yeah. But we want to see on the other side some belief and the idea that there's all these CEOs out there, these white CEOs out there that basically are being dishonest. I, I refuse to believe that that's the outcome. And by the way, you should get some of those white CEOs on this program and they should be pushing on this guy. Because mm. basically what has happened is he's basically brought them all to the same place that he was, yeah. which I have to say is close to the gutter. I don't think that's the way it is. Well, I, I, by the way, I hope it's not the way it is. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Now, Chair Powell struck an optimistic tone about the labor market recovery during his news conference, despite the ongoing narrative about friction from within the labor force. The high-frequency data hasn't been all good, U.S. jobless claims ticking up for the first time since April, and while the level is still much lower than it was several months ago, it's still not the direction that you want the data to be trending, especially after two non-farm payrolls reports that came in below estimates. So we got some reaction from the Biden administration with Mike Pyle, Chief Economic Advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris. He's also the former Chief Investment Officer at BlackRock. And we started by asking Mike if there's any concern at the White House that the pace of economic job creation is not what was expected. We think it's important to pay attention to the trend lines, not uh, any one number, given, as you said, how noisy uh, the data can be, especially on claims. And when you look at the trend lines, I think we're very encouraged. So, you know, the four-week moving average uh, dipped below 400,000 uh, jobless claims for the first time uh, today. You know, that's down over half uh, from the more than 800,000 claims we were seeing when the president and vice president took office. You know, similarly on the monthly job sprints, you know, the economy has created over 2 million jobs uh, since the president and vice president took office, an average of, of around 540,000 jobs a month. You know, if you look at the three months before they took office, it was creating only 60,000 jobs a month. So again, taking a step back, looking at those trend lines, we're encouraged by the improvement we're seeing in the labor market and, uh, and expect that to continue. Are you encouraged by the amount of inclusivity in the market or not? Because of course that's the Fed's 
kind of goal, lifting all boats and showing that people have been left behind previously. People of color, women are attracted back into their labor force. Are you seeing that at a White House level? Is enough being done? So I think one of the things that we are encouraged by, again, kind of recognizing uh, that the data is noisy, you know, I think we're encouraged by some of the wage data that we're seeing, especially uh, wages at the lower end of the income scale. That is indicative to us that uh, the president and, and vice president's economic strategy is working, uh, that we're uh, seeing wage gains uh, for those across the economy, but, but particularly those at the lower end who all too often have been left behind. So again, I think to your point, we're encouraged by the directions we're seeing uh, in inclusivity, but obviously have further to go. And that I think is reflected in the president's proposals around the jobs plan and the families plan that's designed exactly to make the economy more inclusive over, inclusive over time. Mike, let's talk about inflation for a second. Uh, yesterday, Chair Powell basically expressing the view that's held a lot of economists that even with the upward pressure we're seeing lately, it's likely transitory, can be attributed to uh, reopening uh, aspects, uh, supply shocks that are not necessarily going to be repeated. That being said, when the White House is, say, designing infrastructure packages, does expanding the supply side of the economy such that we can grow faster without running into supply shocks um, factor into how you're thinking about infrastructure design? So I'd say two things there, Joe. Uh, you know, first, you know, when we think about the inflation trajectory over the near term, and we've talked for some time about these shorter term supply demand mismatches, and in particular, some of the bottlenecks that we've seen emerge. I mean, you, we all know that uh, in particular, the past couple of prints, uh, the challenges in the semiconductor spa space we've seen uh, bubble over into right. autos. Uh, and so what I think we heard from the administration last week was a commitment uh, through the creation of a new task force to turn over uh, every stone that we can around some of these short-term supply chain disruptions, particularly in spaces like semiconductors, spaces like transportation, logistics, home building and construction. You know, we think a big part of what we can do over the short term to relieve these supply demand mismatches is to exactly focus on the places where we see bottlenecks, convene stakeholders, identify policy solutions, and do what we can to ease this, this transition. But yeah, then I think you're exactly right that part of what is motivating the jobs plan and the families plan is to make investments in our infrastructure, in our competitiveness, in our families. It's ultimately through both enhanced productivity as well as through increasing right. the size and the skill of the labor force to allow this economy to grow faster uh, over time and put that potential uh, to harder work. Investments that you're currently making, of course, that have many of our guests will come on, say, added to inflationary pressures that we've been seeing. Transitory they, they may be, we're starting to see the Fed want to take on inflation or indeed act as if they will do, be a credible threat to it. How do you think about paying for, of course, the significant investment that you're making from an infrastructure perspective if we are likely to see, well, yields push that much higher, perhaps rate hikes come in 2023? So I'd say a couple of things. You know, first, I'd categorize the jobs plan and families plan investments differently than short-term stimulus. These are designed to, to the conversation with Joe just now around really increasing the competitiveness, the inclusivity, uh, the growth potential of the economy over the long term. These are long-term investments in the economy and our infrastructure and our families. 
you know, and secondly, the president and vice president have put forward a plan to pay for these investments. You know, tax changes on the corporate side, uh, among the wealthiest individuals, to pay for these plans over 15 years. And that's reflective of the fact that, you know, not unlike any capital investment, you want to get that to work as soon as possible, but then you want to pay for it uh, slowly over time. And that's what this plan does. Uh, gets those dollars, get those investments working over the next uh, five, six, seven, eight years, and then pays for them more slowly in full over that 15-year horizon. Let's, talk, let's go back to the pace of labor market recovery, because that still is an issue. The fact of the matter is the last two months, and again, it, you know, it's higher than it was previously, but still both times substantially short of, say, where uh, economists thought it would be when they were making their forecast in March. What do you attribute that to primarily? So again, I would say we're encouraged by the trend lines that we're seeing. <laughs> You know, this is an economy that's generated over 500,000 jobs a month uh, for the last four months. Uh, it's putting us on the right type of trajectory. But again, to turn to uh, the news of yesterday, I think you know when we heard uh, Chair Powell uh, speak during the press conference, you know he talked about. Uh, about the ongoing overhang from uh, the coronavirus uh, crisis. He talked about uh, the ongoing overhang from uh, schools only uh, getting reopened from uh, child care issues. Uh, those are the types of things that, that we see and we hear uh, when we are kind of thinking about the pace at which the economy is reopening. And we think those are going to continue improving over time because of the president's economic strategy around shots in arms, around relief in pockets. And so we're encouraged that as we look ahead, uh, the trend lines are only going to improve from here precisely because some of those overhangs that the, the chair and, and that we've been paying attention to should continue dissipating over time. It's been an incredibly busy week for the White House on a geopolitical perspective as well, Mike. And I'm interested in how you feel the pushback in particular versus China. Are you looking at businesses doing business in China as a, as a concern? You're trying to build up the supply chain domestically here in the United States. What are the economic ramifications of some of the moves being mm. made currently from a geopolitical perspective? So I think that uh, everyone around here thinks that this was a successful uh, visit by the president overseas. The goal of this uh, visit to the G7, to Europe, was to highlight that the United States, uh, acting in concert with our democratic allies, uh, can achieve uh, tangible results uh, for both our citizens as well as the world as a whole. And I think that's what you saw. You saw the announcements around uh, a global vaccination effort to, to end the pandemic globally. Uh, you saw efforts on the economic policy side where I spend most of my time to end the race to the bottom around global corporate taxes. You know, this to us is a, is a, is a real moment to demonstrate what the United States uh, leading alongside its democratic allies can achieve. And we think that the record that was generated over the last week is, a, is an important first step and that important initiative. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. And on What'd You Miss? We like to think crypto is for everyone. It, it doesn't always have to be about redefining money or disrupting central banks. 
So he spoke with someone trying to bring the old world of sports and pop culture into the crypto space. Spencer Dinwiddie is an NBA player and star point guard for the Brooklyn Nets. He was also the founder and CEO of Galaxy, which is a blockchain-based social media app that allows fans to buy tokens associated with their favorite stars and use them to interact with their favorite celebrities and athletes. So he started by asking Spencer to explain this different use case for crypto. Um, I mean, when you look at uh, anything with value, right, and in this situation in the entertainment industry, it's usually uh, people, right? right. Uh, fans want to get as close to that value as they possibly can. So, you know, in a, in a distant future, you're probably going to have situations where you can buy stock in, in, in people. Um, but right now, you don't have that. And, and the security laws kind of uh, create friction for that. So we kind of have this, this half step and we want to create an app and an ecosystem built on next generation technology that can walk step by step into that future. That future, of course, that you started because it was a few years ago that you first ever, well, petitioned the NBA, put it to the NBA that you wanted to convert your own contract into a digital currency of form. You wanted to bring perhaps your earnings forward. You wanted to be able to sell it into other people's hands. How did that learning experience go for you? How did it really change the moon music, not only around you, but around like your entire industry of NBA players also getting in on the act? Um, I mean, honestly, uh, being a pioneer in that, in that uh, sense came with a lot of uh, arrows in the back, of it, so to speak. Um, it was tough, but I think... Um, with the recent bull run that the cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem has experienced, there's been a lot of eyes open to it. And, you know, I think what was once written off as a simple cash advance is now seeing something much bigger. Uh, the democratizing uh, and decentralization of something that's illiquid, like a sports contract and allowing access to fans and, you know, having meet and greet experiences and different premiums that, you know, aren't always associated or tied into a traditional sports contract offers both benefits to the fans um, and the players. And at the end of the day, um, if both fan and player are happy, then the NBA or the you know central body also uh, is successful as well. So your uh, your company, Galaxy, is built upon a blockchain or a blockchain-like technology called Hashgraph. It's kind of a competitor in some respects to Ethereum, perhaps. A lot of people look at all these different coins. They don't know how to evaluate them. They don't even have the slightest idea. You had to actually evaluate a platform to figure out what you were going to launch on. How should people go about thinking of this sort of, you know, not from a price perspective per se, but thinking about the pluses and minuses of all these different coins that they're like really just trying to wrap their head around? Yeah, so I mean, you got to kind of separate them first into ones that are trying to be currencies or stores of value and others that are trying to be, uh, you know, smart contract platforms or layer ones, as, as a, lot of, a lot of people call it. Uh, Bitcoin, obviously, is the gold standard. Um, digital gold, a lot of people call it in terms of a currency. But to your point, Ethereum is uh, the most uh, prevalent smart contract platform and a lot of decentralized finance applications are being built on that. Uh, you know, the reason I chose Hashgraph is because it's next generation distributed ledger technology. So it's not technically blockchain, but it is distributed ledger technology. Um, its consensus algorithm is actually called Hashgraph. Um, it's patented. And, you know, when you look at building enterprise grade um, applications, you want that uh, security. You want to know that the network won't be forked. Um, and, you know, for me, I want to align myself with Fortune 500 companies and have some of that, uh, you know, reputation risk management and, and just mm. align myself with, with those type of caliber uh, companies that Calaxi aims to be. Reputation risk management, the fact that you're worrying about, you know, the, the, the 
you're future-proofing whatever you mm. want to be working on when it comes to the uh, decentralized nature of what you're building, but also your own reputation. How much, you know, given you just said actually it helped when you were a pioneer, it helped then to have this rally in crypto to bring people's attention to it. When you then see the sell-off that you do, how much do you have to worry about how crypto is seen? Do you feel like people are getting uh, up to speed with the fact that perhaps it's not just purely used for ill-gotten gains and the like? Yeah, I mean, I think reputation risk management comes in two forms. Um, when we're talking about Galaxy, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 28 and I play in the NBA. My co-founder is 26 and is a Wharton Business School grad. We're both ethnic young men. And so to align ourselves with, you know, LG, Deutsche Telekom, Google, et cetera, uh, helps kind of uh, bring validity to what we're trying to accomplish and, and Hashgraph uh, help provide that. In terms of the actual overall crypto ecosystem, um, you know, people are starting to realize that it's an actual market and markets have ebbs and flows. And, you know, I believe that what we're experiencing right now is a simple correction. If you look at where Bitcoin was only a year ago, there's, you know, the stock market bonds, you know, uh, commodities or, you know, uh, uh, precious metals. None of them have returned like this. And unfortunately, you know, some people only want to experience the good, but you, you can't have good without bad. So, you know, we're experiencing correction right now. I fully believe that we're still within a the midst of a bull run, and we're going to see an uptick going to the end of the year. Real quickly, you know, there, there's the fan-player relationship is changing in all kinds of ways, obviously, social media, etc. One other thing that's becoming much more accepted recently is the rise of sports gambling. And I'm curious, like, how this all fits into it. People want to buy a token on a celebrity or player that they like. They maybe want to bet on the team. How much is that all part of the same desire to, like, sort of just, like, feel more of a stake? in outcomes yeah i mean i think the the ethos and the emotion that you're talking about um is directly tied to what galaxy does now we're not a gambling platform by any stretch um and and don't aim to be but when you start talking about these experiences that you can buy and and having a dynamic pricing models within you know specific athletes or or entertainers or really anybody you know a spencer uh token might be a different price than than a joe token and then when you start having secondaries markets that you know, enables trading and, you know, long, short, all, all types of uh, different avenues that will, you know, be interesting to see it uh, unfold. I wonder which would be worth more, the Joe token or the Spencer token. If it's, I'm going to flip in you if, uh, if the Spencer one is worth more. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.